policy has to do the heavy lifting work. Good morning and welcome to this Friday's edition of Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. China's stocks fall after the government cuts economic growth targets to 7%, flagging the challenges ahead. Mario Draghi declares an ECB victory for the bun buying program even before it begins. And Hong Kong Exchange posts its results with a $68 million revenue from the Shanghai Stock Link in 2014. Today is all about looking at China through the eyes of the National People's Congress. China Market Research Group's Ben Cavender joins us this morning to analyze the issues that have come up in the meetings. That's after our markets discussion with uh, Sakjen's uh, Klaus Bauder. And our last guest this morning is Nicholas Holt from Knight Frank uh, on their latest wealth report. Tobias Hexter of True Partner is our guest host back in the studio this morning. Good morning, Tobias. Good morning, Renita. So 7% growth is the official word. The Hang Seng and the Shanghai Composite both dropped on the news. What are your thoughts on where this is going to take markets today? Um, On the very short term, I wouldn't be that certain. But if I would look slightly longer, I think we're having a bit of a situation that good news is bad news or bad news is good news. There's this trillions of dollar resting in the coffers of the Chinese government aching to be used to support the market or other overt measures measures to push up the market. That's the good news? I think that's a good... I think um, negative or slightly disappointing economic and growth figures will lead to more government stimulus. So So what is the bad news? There is no bad news. Oh, there is no bad news. (laughs) Okay, well, that's good news. Yes. Okay, hold your thoughts. We're definitely going to be discussing more of this, plenty more of this uh, later on this morning. Uh, let's look at uh, some of the other stories that have been affecting markets. Um, first, uh, the European Central, Central Bank, the ECB, will start buying government bonds in Eurozone countries from next week, starting from Monday, actually. The bank's president, Mario Draghi, is pretty confident about the success of quantitative easing, even before it has begun. Our monetary policy decisions have worked and it's with some uh, certain degree of satisfaction that the governing council has acknowledged this. Uh, We see that uh, the objectives are gradually being uh, attained and uh, the market reaction to the announcement, the expectation first and the announcement second of our uh, securities market program has also been quite, uh, quite effective. He says that QE will actually pump more money into Eurozone economies and boost growth. The substantial additional easing of our monetary policy stance (laughs) supports and reinforces the emergence of more favorable developments of the euro area economy. But investors like SCORE CEO Dennis Kessler are not that bullish. He says the ECB's QE is too late and badly shaped. 
Unfortunately, uh, you know, insurers and reinsurers are not responsible for the financial crisis. You know, we didn't start it, we didn't amplify it, but we pay a huge cost today because the return on the asset side is really uh, very low as compared to previous uh, uh, previous years. And this is a consequence of the quantitative easing that has taken place in the U.S. and now in Europe. So, uh, yes, the financial contribution to the asset management to uh, those large institutional investors is really down as compared to what uh, what it was. That's the direct effect. He also talks about an indirect effect. Because many investors are now incited to invest in cap bonds, in ILS, as we say, because they seek return, and so it adds additional capacity to bear risk, and therefore it's a kind of new competition that we have to face. There are more and more cap bonds that are issued, and even mortality bonds, and so we have a fierce competition with those types of, in, of vehicles uh, to, uh, to bear the uh, catastrophic uh, risk around, around the globe. So... Negative direct effect, negative indirect effect. Double whammy there. U.S. stocks uh, snapped a two-day losing streak overnight, finishing higher on news of the European monetary stimulus and a $21 billion pharmaceutical merger between AbbVie and PharmaCyclix. At the close, the Dow was up 38 points at 18,134. The S&P 500 rose a tenth of a percent to 2,101, while the Nasdaq finished at 4,982 up a third of a percent. Hong Kong Exchanges and Clearing has reported a profit of $5.17 billion for the last year, up 13% year-on-year. Revenue reached $9.8 billion, $68 million of which was brought in by revenue from the Shanghai Stocklink. The company has proposed a final dividend of $2.15 per share. Group Chief Charles Lee said that the next stage of business development would be a broader collaboration with the markets on the mainland. The biggest challenge for China is to find product for that massive liquidity in the banks to find investment opportunities to diversify away from China banks. And we, our task, our mission in life is to provide this market, provide the product so that that liquidity can finally move and migrate from China's banks to global and Deployment, And that's probably the last pool of capital in the world of that size that is yet to be globally deployed. So our business model is fundamentally changing today, and this is the beginning of that change. And our financial result today only start to show a glimpse of what is yet to come. All right, so uh, let's bring in our first guest of the morning, Klaus Bader, who is a chief economist at SockGen. Good morning, Klaus. Good morning. So, uh, Klaus, uh, what do you make of uh, Draghi's comments there? I mean, Tobias, who was sitting next to me, was shaking his head vigorously, disagreeing when uh, Mario was talking and agreeing when uh, uh, the SCORE CEO was saying that, uh, no, you know, QE is too late and badly shaped. What do you think? Well, you know, there are always winners and losers, and um, there's no doubt that um, the extremely low levels of uh, interest rates are making life very difficult for life insurers and others um, who have to achieve a long-term return. But at the same time, there are also clear winners, um, and um, of course... 
the bonds that um, these institutions already hold have risen a lot in price, so that's favorable for them. But I think the key thing is that we get the economy going um, because, um, frankly, if uh, the economy doesn't get going, then um, uh, no matter how high interest rates are, um, insurers and other companies are going to find themselves in, in trouble. And I think one of the main conduits for um, the success or failure of quantitative easing um, is what happens to the currency. And um, I think one has to agree with Mario Draghi that um, in both respect of interest rates, reducing interest rates further and weakening the euro, the ECB strategy has been pretty successful. The euro has certainly returned to competitive level and um, the improvement in the economy is palpable. The uh, ECB is absolutely not alone in uh, upgrading the growth forecast for 2015. Um, we're in a similar position. I think everybody else in the market is in a similar position. Economic growth is unlikely this year to be around 1%. It's likely to be about 50% higher, 1.5%. So I would say that that's actually a success. Okay, Tobias, why do I get the feeling that you have other thoughts? Yeah, I would agree indeed that a competitive devaluation is always nice. But the one problem that I see if you look on the ground in Europe, even with the liquidity being unleashed and despite the banks nicely having front-run the whole operation, if you look at the yields, there's actually still no money going towards small, medium enterprises. The whole idea of getting the economy started, indeed a competitive devaluation, but I don't see money flowing from the banks. Yes, it's flowing, but it's flowing across the globe to chase assets and yields. Well, um Part of that is definitely true. You're right. There's probably now capital outflow out of the euro area just because yields are so incredibly unappealing and unattractive. But um, you know what you say about um, credit creation is, I think, only partly true and isn't really up to the latest developments. Uh, credit growth, which was contracting for quite a long period in the euro area, is now at long last expanding. And um, also credit to um, corporations is now beginning to expand. Now, it's only the beginning, and um, all of this can certainly be derailed. That's uh, always a possibility, but I would be somewhat surprised if that were the case. You know, I find it a bit odd to uh, criticize the ECB for quantitative easing. Um, it is somewhat late in the game. That's absolutely true. Whereas the general um, the general perception, the general review of uh, the very same policy being in the U.S. or in the U.K. is being lauded as a great success. Um, in Japan, of course, the game has been played for a long, long time and um, been stepped up dramatically. And here, too, I don't think there are many voices who say that um, this has been unhelpful in uh, in the mains in um, stimulating the economy. So I don't quite understand this, um, I don't know whether I want to call it double standard, but this differentiation of judgment about the same policy implementations um, in various countries and why the ECB should be doing a particularly bad job when everybody's doing a great job. Well, it's, it's all about the timing. I agree. The U.S. are doing a great job. Because the ECB is creating their exit. The, the flow of money now being unleashed in Europe flows partly to the US, keeping their interest rates reasonable. So the predicted Armageddon of a Fed exit is not taking place. But how on earth is the ECB ever going to exit? And one more point regarding to capital into uh, the actual economy. As soon as the LTRO, which was effectively a very big free lunch for the banks, and even Draghi uh, indirectly admitted it, has been changed into a program that directly tied towards providing money for corporations and businesses, and the take-up was negligible. 
Yeah, there is a you know a limited um, maybe limited demand for um, for liquidity. The banks, of course, are already holding massive amounts of excess liquidity, and have been until now depositing it mostly with the ECB, where they're now being charged for for the pleasure. You know, the banks, of course, would uh, would say we are ready to lend. Um, it's just that there's been very little credit demand so far because um, many sectors in the euro area economy are still focused on deleveraging. But that does seem to be, again, that does seem to be fading. If you look at the numbers, there does seem to be some increased risk appetite. Um, you know, you can, the ECB cannot force the banks to lend. Um, they can make it as attractive for them to lend as possible, but the ECB cannot force the banks, and it certainly can't um, can't force creditors to to ask for uh, for loans. So um, I think the ECB has pretty much done um, what it can, continues to do what it can. Um, I wonder what the commentary were would be if the ECB had just been sitting on the sidelines, not doing anything. All right. So uh, coming back uh, sort of closer to uh, markets on this side of the world, uh, Klaus, what do you make of um, Charles Lee's uh, uh, address, you know, after Hong Kong Exchange actually posted its revenues and profit numbers yesterday? He says that the next round of business development means broader collaboration with the mainland, presumably through a program similar to the Stock Connect program perhaps in Shenzhen next. Uh, what are your thoughts on um, how healthy this is for the markets and trading this side of the world? I think it is helpful. Um, it's, I mean, he was um, addressing the point that um, about this huge pool of liquidity that uh, exists in uh, Chinese banks and um, that uh, is searching for investment opportunities in the rest of the world and that the Hong Kong Stock Exchange wants to be a conduit for that. That's certainly one side. Um, I think that there's another side of it too, which is uh, opening up China to international money. Um, the While and I think that's an issue that's uh, likely to be loom very large on investors' um, horizon. The um, uh, Chinese stock market is the second largest stock market in the world and is dramatically under-owned. Um, you can't say underweighted because it's not part of any of the big indices, um, but it's certainly under-owned. And um, you know, on some metrics, the uh, Chinese stock market looks extremely attractive compared to other uh, stock markets. Its uh, risk premium is very, very high uh, compared to virtually any other market. So I think there, there are two roles, but um, you know, part of the whole reform process in China clearly is the reform of financial markets, financial reform in a broad sense, and um, that is progressing you know, reasonably quickly, step by step, um, as the Chinese authorities like to take one step at a time. Um, but um, quite a lot has happened, and um, the Chinese government is, of course, encouraging also investment of Chinese um, entities abroad, um, the whole Silk Road project, um, uh, etc., all of that, and also some encouragement to um, borrow internationally. Um, it is certainly one of the areas where the government has been moving fairly quickly. And I think, yeah, I think it's uh, positive, but all of these things also bear risks. All right, Klaus, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Klaus Bader, and he is the chief economist for SOCGEN. Well, China has set an economic growth rate, uh, growth target for this year at around 7%, which is the lowest in 11 years. Uh, Premier Li cited sluggish growth in investment, a limited consumption, and no sign of recovery in the world economy. He said that the target took into account what's needed and what's possible. And speaking through an interpreter, he spelled out the difficulties facing the country's economy. 
The world economy is undergoing profound adjustment. Its recovery lacks drive. The influence of geopolitics is increasing, and there are a greater number of uncertainties at play. Promoting growth, creating jobs, and making structural adjustments have become common goals for the international community. With downward pressure on China's economy building and deep-seated problems in development surfacing, the difficulties we're to encounter in the year ahead may be even more formidable than those of last year. So let's bring in uh, our next guest, China Market Research Group's principal, Ben Cavender, who speaks to us from Shanghai. Good morning, Ben. Good morning. So, Ben, uh, you know, if you look at a snapshot of the Chinese economy, you've got, uh, what, a cooling property market, sluggish car sales, severe industrial overcapacity. Beijing said that it would increase the reliance on the services sector and it vowed to create 10 million new jobs this year and ensure that the registered jobless rate didn't exceed 4.5%. Last year's rate was 4.6%. So... um, Tell us why, then, you think that uh, the situation perhaps could get any worse or, you know, why Premier Li is saying uh, that uh, China will face an even more difficult time ahead. Well, you know, I think it's clear right now that China is going through a major rebalancing in its economy. They're, they're essentially finding out that they can't put together the kind of stimulus efforts they have in the past, sort of increase investment, increase uh, infrastructure spending, infrastructure capacity in China. And so that's sort of leaving them with not a lot of ways to sort of goose the economy. Uh, you've got Europe being comparatively weak right now. There's not a lot of foreign demand for a lot of their heavy manufacturing, and so they really have to rely heavily on any kind of growth they can get in the services sector to sort of prop up growth uh, in the market in the year ahead. And the good news is I, I think they're getting that. Um, if you look at where FDI is going in China, that's where you're seeing the, the strong growth right now. Uh, companies are investing in services. Consumer demand is relatively high overall. But right now, it still may not be enough to really put together the kind of strong growth that the government would like to see. So I think that's why you're hearing them being very cautious. I think they recognize the structural changes and, if anything, would like to sort of seem conservative right now so that hopefully throughout the course of the year, they actually have some positive news for people. Tobias? I can ask one question. Uh, Recently, we saw from the PBOC some quite dovish measures. Uh, Do you have any idea or uh, expectations whether the Chinese uh, authorities will join the loose currency competitive devaluation game? I could see them taking further steps to uh, inject money into the economy, to lower interest rates, to try and make the RMB a little bit more competitive internationally. Um, That wouldn't be too surprising to me at all. I think the challenge right now, though, is just demand has been so weak uh, for, for Chinese manufacturing. I think the worry is... If they start playing with their currency and lowering the value of the currency too much to be more competitive internationally, they may still not get the kind of gains they'd like to see. Um, If anything, I think what you'll see probably is a greater emphasis on finding ways to get money to uh, smaller businesses in China. You know, looking at this job creation, if they want to create 10 million new jobs, they're going to have to find a way to convince companies that it's cheap enough to borrow money and and get funds to them so they can kind of uh, spurn development. So, Ben, you know, of course, uh, the growth rate is down just slightly. Uh, but the question is, have the reports so far addressed the crucial problems hampering China's sustainable growth? And, you know, what exactly are these? I think we've, we haven't heard enough yet. I think sort of true details are really spotty right now. I think the government acknowledges some of the key problems. You know, they acknowledge that there is a big issue right now is the environment. They need to have stronger enforceable laws related to the environment. And so I think that provides an actually an opportunity to drive job growth and to 
kind of drive some investment spending here in China, um, while at the same time sort of showing the Chinese people that the government's being attentive to their needs. I think that's a, a massive growth hurdle, actually, for the economy, so it's good that they're looking at that. They just maybe have not said enough yet. I don't think the government has done enough to address uh, the overcapacity they have right now. Um, within the manufacturing sector, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see some form of consolidation this year. You know, if you look at the steel producers and some of what's going on right now, the situation's pretty grim, and I, I don't think we've heard much right now other than saying, you know, we're going to open some of these sectors to foreign investment, to private companies to kind of get in and become more involved. So I think it'll be interesting to see over the next month kind of what sort of details come out and what actually gets ratified. So, Ben, um, you know, uh, certainly the, the one criticism that is sort of going back and forth is about, you know, China wanting to perhaps gain more control over Hong Kong. And most of that is happening politically. You know, uh, uh, they, they've asserted that, you know, they want to focus on sort of developing the young and teaching them a more sort of Chinese way of life, so on and so forth, that kind of thing investors and people in the financial world are, of course, excited about sort of the connection between the two countries or between the SAR and the mainland, I should say, uh, in terms of the stock connect and sort of where that's going in the further. However, there are some very, very negative uh, analysts who say, well, that is just another method of um, China sort of spreading its tentacles into Hong Kong economically. What do you make of that? Yeah, you know, it's a it's a tricky one to answer. I mean, my my personal sort of feeling or opinion is that you know the, the Chinese government need not you know push too hard to try and take more control over what's going on in Hong Kong. I I don't know how well that's ever going to serve their purposes. I think if they were smart, they would probably continue doing what they're doing as far as opening up more programs similar to the Stock Connect program, mainly because that paves the way to sort of open things up for money to come into China and to sort of. Uh, have better control over capital outflow. I mean, you'd much rather have somebody that's got some money in China investing in stocks in Hong Kong than finding other ways to sort of, you know, get their money overseas. So, uh, you know, I, I think you are going to see greater connectivity simply because China's going to probably open up more of its stock markets. But I think they would be unwise to sort of, you know, have a really heavy political agenda in regards to Hong Kong. And I'm not sure how much they do. I think uh, it might be overstated compared to what the reality is. All right, Ben, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Ben Cavender, and he is a research group principal at, uh, principal, I should say, excuse me, at China Market uh, Research Group. Quick look at the numbers this morning. The Nikkei is up 61 points to 18,812. Australia's ASX index is down uh, 16 points to 5,857, and Sold's Cosby up 5 points to Time is 8.25 and everybody is indeed looking forward to the weekend. But before that, uh, let's discuss another interesting story on Money for Nothing. Uh, Asia has seen a high growth rate in super rich populations in 2014. Last year, around 15 people a day joined the ranks of the ultra wealthy or those with a net worth of over 30 million US dollars. And this growth is set to continue in the coming decade. So let's bring in our last guest of the morning, Knight Frank's Asia Pacific head of research, Nicholas Holt, who's just arrived from Singapore to give us all the news. Good morning, Nicholas. Good morning. So, Nicholas, uh, this is a very interesting report. What are the highlights? Can you tell us? 
So this is <clears throat> from our wealth report. 2015, which we just released yesterday. And it looks into wealth trends around the world and how this impacts prime property markets, most notably uh, residential and, and commercial. Um, so I mean, the, key, the key findings are that, yes, we are seeing an increased growth in the population of ultra-high net worth individuals around the world. And perhaps unsurprisingly, their favoured asset class continues to be property. It's really the cornerstone of many of these high net worths uh, investment portfolios. Uh, 23% of their um, portfolios is allocated to property <clears throat> and 26%, so nearly one in four, sorry, over one in four, are saying they're going to be purchasing a residential property this year. Okay. And where, where in Asia do you see the fastest growth in wealth? So the fastest growth in wealth is actually coming from Mongolia, which saw a 6.7% growth. Surely um, that's not about property. <clears throat> well, it, it is about property, actually, to a certain extent. I mean, the Mongolian property market's actually uh, actually booming. I mean, the, the, the real high growth rates are coming from countries often with starting from a low base. Mm. So that's... that's um, and, and if we look forward as well, the countries are going to see the highest growth, some of the African countries, places like Vietnam and Indonesia as well even places like Venezuela in, in, in South America. Um, but all of this does have an impact on, on, on property markets, not just because there's high net worth individuals in a certain place who wish to buy property, but also because we see flows of wealth moving around the world, influencing property markets um, outside of their, their home uh, country. So these high net, work, uh, high net worth excuse me, individuals, where are they buying these properties? I mean, besides Mongolia, um, but... I assume that they're buying these properties abroad and not necessarily in their home countries. Well, for, the, for your first home, you'd, you'd be buying in your home country. But um, certainly we're, we are seeing increasing internationalization of, of demand for, for prime property. The, the markets that can tend to be targeted are the, the key global hubs, so places like London, New York, um, Hong Kong and Singapore, although we have seen reactions from the um, policymakers in Hong Kong, Singapore to that. We've seen 15% additional stamp duty in both these markets. Uh, Sydney um, and then other US markets, certainly the people are buying into recovery over there. Um, the US markets have been some of the strongest performers over the last uh, year. Tobias? Yeah, interesting. Um, one question I wonder, if indeed so much money is being uh, set in or even invested in real estate, could it be that the current situation of like Hong Kong and Singapore on a global scale becomes maybe the new normal, especially given the possible debasement of currencies? Quite possible. I mean, we are seeing policy pushback in many countries around the world. Um, <clears throat> it's, we're seeing increasing taxes. For example, in the UK, we're seeing the capital gains tax for non-resident foreign buyers being introduced from April. They're discussing the regulations uh, for foreign purchases in Australia at the moment and just amend it for agricultural property. Um, we're also seeing talk of pied-à-terre tax uh, being introduced in New York for properties over five million. So there's a, certainly a reaction. I don't know how protectionist it will be, uh, whether it will be as protectionist as we've seen in Hong Kong and Singapore, where a 15% additional stamp duty um, has really calmed foreign activity. I mean, certainly in places like the UK, it'd be very, very difficult, I believe, for them to introduce, just politically, to introduce a, a foreign tax, um, so to speak. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Nicholas Holt, and he is the Asia-Pacific Head of Research at Knight Frank. A quick look at the numbers. The Nikkei is now up 127 points to 18,879. Australia's uh, ASX 100 is down 27 points to 
5,846 and sold Kospi up six points to 2005. In currencies, one euro currently buys you 1.10 US dollars. The US dollar is trading at 120 yen and one pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 81 cents. So Tobias, here we are at the end of the show, at the end of the week. What are your parting thoughts? What should we be thinking of as we uh, head out to enjoy this Friday? Yeah, I would agree with the previous speakers in terms of uh, maybe Chinese equities and bricks and mortar because all these new highly ultra, ultra high net worth individuals, usually they do something right. So it's almost like follow the money. And indeed, if the Hong Kong and Singapore becomes the new normal, rare yourself for prices. All right. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Tobias Hexter, who is a senior strategist at True Partner. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up this Friday morning for Money for Nothing. A quick look at the weather forecast for today. It'll be cloudy to overcast with one or two rain patches, visibility rather low. The temperature will be, uh, the temperature right now is 17 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 95%. Time for the half-hour news with Sam Butler. The Independent Police Complaints Council has received a record 2,000 complaints against the forces handling of the Occupy movement last year. Its Deputy Secretary-General Daniel Moy said a large number of them were linked to several high-profile incidents. There are five incidents which involve more than 40% of the complainant uh, making complaints in relation to the same incidents. These five incidents, um, I can recall, uh, one of them is the um, seven police officers suspect of assaulting a citizen and another incident is in relation to the now TV staff assaulting police officers with a letter. So um, 40% of the complainants making complaints in relation to the same